Well, good morning. Howdy. We're going to open with a single verse, which happens to be the, the sermon text of Edwards' sermon that we're going to look at this morning, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. This is just a continuation of last week's. We didn't, if you recall, we didn't finish last week. We ran out of time. So we're just going to pick right up and we're going to, going to basically center our thoughts around this single sermon this morning and the effects of it, the effects which were already preceding it because of his previous sermons. Uh, so the handout this morning is, we don't have a new one. We just have last week's. So you, you may notice that if you were here. If you weren't here, some of you weren't here, so you definitely want one since you didn't get it last week. So the text is Romans chapter 3, verse 19, which I will read. This is Paul speaking. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we ask for your gracious presence and that you would glorify yourself in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were looking at the beginning of that surprising work of God, as Edwards called it, in Northampton. This was towards the the middle, the end of 1734. He had preached two sermons which we looked at, the first of which was a divine and supernatural light. And the error, if you recall, that, er- that, that Edwards was, was attempting to counteract was that saying of Arminius, or the, the basic Arminian mindset, that the ability to believe in Christ belongs to nature. It's not a supernatural gift, but it belongs to nature. Uh, Edwards said, no, it is supernatural. Faith is a supernatural gift, and it's immediately imparted this divine and supernatural light which enables us to have a clear view of the object of our faith. You have to remember, uh, try as we may to have faith, until the object of our faith becomes clear to us and glorious, it, it is humanly impossible to believe. Faith must have an object. It's not just positive thinking. I think we're all very, very settled on that point. It's not just positive thinking. It's an utter dependence on that object of our faith. So the error, the ability to believe belongs to nature. Edwards was counteracting it, saying, no, it's immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. In fact, that was part of his title. The titles of his sermons are always much longer than they come to us. If you, if you go back and you, you look at them, they're sometimes like whole, almost a half a paragraph. is just a title. So this is what Edwards said. He, actually he said it, that is the divine and supernatural life, which was the work of the Spirit. It effectually influences the inclination and changes the nature of the soul so that it is enabled. It is enabled. That's Dort language there. It is enabled to choose him and to give itself entirely to him. So there's the faith. If that's not faith, I don't know what it is. To choose him and to give ourselves entirely to him. That is the act of faith. And it is. we are made able to do it because the Holy Spirit proceeds us to effectually influence the inclination. That's what the Arminians would not allow. The Spirit does not effectually influence the inclination because that would be to infringe upon our free will, which must remain intact 
and in a vacuum, as it were, apart from any irresistible work of the Spirit of God. That is not what Edwards was preaching to his congregation. And I want to say another thing real quick, too, about this faith. It's not, and again, this is the language of Dort, the, 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 the uh, enabling is not so accomplished by the Spirit that it leaves us now in a state of equilibrium. Now I'm able to believe, so let's see. Uh, let me think about this for a minute. Let me, you know, let me put up my sheet of pluses and minuses, pros and cons. Do I actually want to believe now that I am able? That's not how it works. Ed, Edwards would have said he didn't use this illustration, but he was full of illustrations. But one that would be helpful would be uh, we're, not, we're not deliberating once, once the Holy Spirit gives us faith and enlightens our mind in the knowledge of Christ. It's more like the sluice to a dam. You, you open the sluice to a dam and the water doesn't sit there and think, well, let's see, should I rush out now or not? No, it comes out as a matter of course. And that's what happens to us when we were converted, when the Spirit gave us faith and enabled us to believe, we didn't deliberate. Uh, I don't say that there's not reasonable thinking going on, but there is an irresistible draw so that now, because we are made new, we're a new creature, and so we do what the creature was originally created to do in the garden, and that is to love God and to choose Him for its entire portion. And that's what happens every time a Christian comes to believe, or I should say a sinner uh, comes to become a Christian by believing. So that's a divine and supernatural light. Then the second sermon was justification by faith alone. The error here that Edwards was contradicting or counteracting was that the tendency among his congregation and this was largely brought up because of the, the controversy, if you remember, over Robert Breck, uh, an Arminian uh, young minister who was about to be installed in Springfield, which was not too many miles away from Northampton. And that stirred up uh, the controversy afresh of Arminianism. And many in his congregation began to think within themselves, well, this sounds reasonable to us, these Arminian notions that, uh, well, if a man isn't able then God won't hold him responsible, or that maybe just good civil virtue uh, is enough. We don't necessarily need faith, or if we do, it's just kind of a, a faithfulness, not a lively dependence on Christ as our Savior. So faith justifies as a principle of obedience. That was the error. Uh, they were thinking that the, the, the faith itself that we're exercising, it's free will by which we're believing, and therefore, as we believe, there's kind of a nugget um, or an iota, at least, of virtue in it. So that, produced by my free will, my, my faith is an act of the human will. And there's some virtue in it. So I'm being justified because God is eyeing the obedience of my faith as a ground, if not the entire ground, at least a partial part of the ground of my justification. So I'm seeing something, some again, a little bit of a, a goodness in myself that contributes to my salvation. No, said Edwards, the obedience of Christ is our only and the exclusive ground of our justification. And we only come to be justified because we partake in his own justification, which he received because of his obedience, perfect obedience to the end. He was under, uh, if I might dare put it this way, he was under uh, a covenant of works, so to speak, in a way that we never have been since Adam, because he is, as we'll hear something I think of in the sermon, uh, at least if not this week, in, in coming weeks, he, 
he was the second Adam. Adam was under a law or a covenant of works. Uh, he transgressed. Christ comes under a law of works, and he is justified by his works, in his faith, in his obedience, in his life, and in his obedience in his death. And we partake of his justification. There's no other way to be justified in the world because the covenant of works has been broken by Adam's, but, but we're still under it, and we can never attain to that righteousness which was required of Adam because of the fall. So this is such rich theology that Edwards is uh, at pains to make practical according to the needs of his congregation. So the obedience of Christ is our only ground of justification. It's nothing in us. It's not our works. It's not even our faith. It's not even our faith foreseen. Seen or foreseen. Our faith is the instrument, not the ground of our justification. Uh, So we're justified by an alien righteousness, to to, to hearken back to Luther's kind of language. Uh, Extra notes that is outside of ourselves. It's, It's not anything in us. It's outside of us, and it's in Christ our Savior. Neither salvation, and this is Edwards then, neither salvation nor Christ are given as a reward for faith or anything else of ours. The gospel abases man and ascribes all the glory of our salvation to Christ. Okay, so now now that, that took a few minutes at least to, to, to cover our ground from last week. So now you remember we ended last week uh, with Edwards' testimony of the fruit of that sermon. He said, just upon my suffering, a very, abuse, uh, very open abuse for it. You remember uh, there was a great amount of pushback by leading members of the church for him to meddle, as he put it, in the controversy of justification by faith alone. Uh, that, that actually, had they, had they had descended so far that that, that prime article of the church uh, had become a controversial issue. But he insisted on preaching on it. And so he says, just upon this open abuse for preaching the sermon, God's work wonderfully broke forth amongst us, and the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in. There were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons savingly converted, and souls began to flock to Christ as the Savior in whose righteousness alone they hoped to be justified. So as the year 1734 ended, got into December, that was a description of what was going on in December of 1734 that I just read. And then the new year comes, 1735, uh, Edward says this, and this is all written in his faithful narrative of the surprising work of God, which uh, I strongly recommend that you take some time to read. It's not too terribly long, but uh, I mean, it dwarfs anything that I'm kind of hinting at or, or you know, reading an excerpt here or there. It's so rich and full. Uh, of experiential or experimental theology. So I strongly recommend uh, that you read it. So this is what Edward says, continuing. A great and earnest concern became universal in all parts of the town. The noise of the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. The only thing in their view was to get into the kingdom of heaven, and everyone appeared pressing into it, It was then a dreadful thing amongst us to lie out of Christ in danger every day of dropping into hell. Now, to me it's notable, this last statement that he makes, the only thing in their view was to get into the kingdom of heaven. 
and everyone appeared pressing into it. You, you see the notable absence of what we often see today, a, a, a simple decision. Like, my emotions have been moved by the preacher, the invitation is given, and I don't say that these things are, are bad in and of themselves, but, but they're missing uh, a vital exercise of the spirit that Edwards is describing here. Pe- people are it, it, they're thinking about it, but they find themselves unable to believe, and they're agonizing over a sense of conviction. And there's a process going on here, and we talked about this in the first and second weeks, this Puritan doctrine, uh, which was not absent in the Reformation, but the Puritans really, really honed in on it, this doctrine of preparation, that until a man is emptied of his own righteousness or has a sense of his own disqualification, he can never believe in Christ. It's, it, it's psychologically impossible to jump out of a ship that you don't think is seeking, uh, sinking. You can't, you can't do it. And that was the, the Puritan doctrine of preparation. And this is what you see going on here. Men and women and children becoming convinced of their own sin, but not simply just saying, okay, well, I'll decide for Christ. Because, well, okay, I'm deciding for Christ, but nothing's happening. How do I find peace? How do I find the guilt lifted that, that I'm so sensible of and being tortured by? Well, at this time, as we go on then, Edwards preached his third key sermon. And this sermon, uh, as great as the effects were of his sermon on justification by faith alone, the effects of this sermon, he said, were greater than any other sermon he preached during this time. And that was the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. Now, the text, we already read that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held guilty before God. And his doctrine, as he stated it early on in the sermon, is this, it is just with God eternally to cast off and destroy sinners, for this is the punishment which the law condemns us to. Well, as as I just expressed, many in the congregation were being weighed down. While many were being converted, there were many still that were, as you might, might, might put it, in the gall of bitterness. They had a sense of their guilt. They were trying to wrestle free from that sense of guilt. Uh, the only thing, as Edwards had said, the only thing in their view was to get into the kingdom. So how do we get in? We want to be in. So an objection was raised early on at this point that, well, we are willing, but God's not hearing our prayers. We want to. We're exercising our free will. But that vaunted free will that we were boasting of now doesn't seem to actually be doing anything for us now that we actually are made acutely sensible of our own sin and our own guilt. Well, Edwards answers the objection. And uh, this is just so, so rich. He answers the objection by telling them that the will that men are boasting of is not what they think. They think that they're exercising free will and that they want Christ. But Edwards disabuses them of this notion. He says, you tell of a willingness, but consider what is the object of that will. It is not Christ but it is wholly terminated on your escape from eternal misery. Your will goes no further than self. It never reaches Christ. You are willing not to be miserable. That is, you love yourself. There, your will and your choice terminate. But your heart does not go out after Christ. He has no share in your heart at all. That that is so penetrating. Well then you ask the question, why not? Well, Why are they not loving Christ? Well, this comes back again to effectual calling. Uh, They're in a natural state. They're under conviction of sin. They're not enabled to believe until the Spirit effectually 
effectually convinces them of sin and enlightens their mind in the knowledge of Christ so that the object, an all-sufficient person, who is the only one that can remove that guilt, begins to appear in their mind's eye until they begin to see. As, as Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know, and then he goes on and on, that you may know the love of Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and so forth. Well, this is what they need. So, Edward says, well, you can't because you haven't been wrought upon by the Holy Spirit to see and to feel your offense against God. You're still defending yourself. You're still justifying yourself. You want to be justified, but you have no need by your own testimony of being justified because you're still justifying yourself at some level before God. Your mouth has not been shut. Uh, you, do not, you do not acquiesce in God's verdict as being guilty and condemnable. And so you're charging God with injustice. How can you be willing, says Edwards, how can you be willing to have Christ for a Savior from a punishment you are not sensible you deserve? It is impossible that you should be willing because you never yet had such a sense of your own sinfulness and guilt in God's sight as to be convinced that you lay justly condemned. You are not willing that your own goodness should be set at naught. And therefore, you are not willing to be saved in that way that God has freely offered in Christ. Again, that's so pregnant with theology. There's so much in there in a very short sentence. You are not willing to be, you say you're willing to be saved, but you're actually not willing to be saved in the way that God has appointed. In the way that God has appointed. You're not, in fact, willing to be saved by the Savior that God has appointed. Because that Savior that God has appointed, if you're to be saved by Him, He says, unless a man hate his own life, he's not worthy of me. And you don't hate your own life. This is... I'll refrain from just babbling on because it's, there's just so much to say, but I can't improve on what Edwards is saying. In other words, every day Edwards is saying, this is not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing him here at this point, but in other words, every day you're spurning Christ and his benefits. You're not obeying God's command to repent and believe because God will not give Christ to you on your own carnal terms. You want him to come to you on your terms. He says, you can only come to me on my terms. No man can come to the Father but through Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And you must come to Christ as he is offered, as he is presented to you. Otherwise, you're not, you, that Christ that you're coming to is a figment of your imagination. It's, it's as it were, a graven image in the mind. It's, a, it's an invention of man. And so actually, you're closer to being an idolater trying to come to him in this way than you are actually obeying the summons of God to come to his only approved way of salvation, his own beloved son. So Edward says, and this is the lengthy quote in the handout, some of you have risen up against God in your minds and opposed him in his sovereign dispensation. You have dared to find fault and quarrel with God that he should govern according to his own glory and his own wisdom. But if God should ever uh, I'm sorry, but if God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. And here he's, again, he's, he's, he's laying out piece by piece in a practical way the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. If God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. Why should God be obliged to express such wonderful love to you, to you who never exercised the least degree of love to him? You never have loved God, who is infinitely glorious and lovely. Why then is God under obligation to love you, who are all over deformed and loathsome? 
You never so much as stirred one step, sincerely making the glory of God your end or acting from real respect to Him. The whole orbit of this person's life is revolving around himself. And, and I trust that, that as we're reading this, you can relate to your experience, hopefully in the past, uh, of that, that, that uh, as, as, um, as G.I. Packer put it, toiling, uh, revolving in, in the toils of synergism. That's, that's the phrase I was trying to think of, the toils of synergism. Many people who have been gloriously converted can look back and say, I was in the toils of synergism. God did something, he was waiting for me, but I couldn't do it. That's the toils of synergism. So, again, I interrupted Edwards. I apologize. Let's pick up. Uh, you You never so much as stirred one step, sincerely making the glory of God your end or acting from real respect to him. And why then is it hard if God does not do such great things for you as the changing of your nature, raising you from spiritual death to life, delivering you from eternal misery and bestowing upon you eternal glory. God called upon you. He exhorted you. But you went on without regarding Him. You have slighted God. And yet, is it hard that God should slight you? Are you more honorable than God, that He must be obliged to make much of you, how light soever you make of Him and His glory? He has preserved you while you slept. But when you arose, it was to return to the old trade of sinning. As God has multiplied mercy, so you have multiplied provocations. And yet now are you ready to quarrel for mercy and to find fault with God because he does not bestow infinite mercy upon you, heaven with all it contains, and even himself for your eternal portion? Well, as as Edwards was portraying this, he's portraying, again, as I said, nothing but perfect, impeccable justice. It's very reasonable as we begin to think this out. But then he comes to the climax of the sermon. And again, the sermon, I heartily recommend it. I warmly recommend it to your reading. There's so much more in it than what we're looking at here. Uh, it's just so good. That's all I can say. Read it. If, if I had a little more money at my disposal, I would af- actually offer you money to read it. But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> There's another path. Now, Edwards turns. There's another path that perfect justice may take. And here we come to propitiation. This other path that justice may take is one that was born out of the good pleasure of God's will, looking at nothing in man, but only in his divine counsel. He had the good pleasure, the wisdom, the deep infinite wisdom to make another way from before all ages, before we were ever born. And it was actually accomplished in the cross of Christ. It would be just, says Edwards now, it would be just in God to save you through Christ who has made complete satisfaction for your sin. God may, through this mediator... Actually, I need to back up. I I added a word there uh, without thinking that Edwards did not have, and there's a reason he wouldn't have added it at this point. He, He said it would be just in God to save you through Christ who has made complete satisfaction for sin. I said for your sin. Edwards is saying he made complete satisfaction for sin. The only people, again this is good solid reformed uh, doctrine, the people that God has that Christ has satisfied for their sins are the elect, those that are in Christ. Uh, 
among those in his congregation, who knows but God himself, who Christ actually died for and bore their sins. Nobody knows. But the free offer of the gospel invitation is there. He has made propitiation for sins. And you are a sinner. Therefore, you are qualified to the hilt to come to Christ and have your sins satisfied. So I just wanted to make that that uh, uh, go back and erase my mistake. God may, through this mediator, not only justly, but honorably show you mercy. The blood of Christ is so precious, it is sufficient to pay your debt and perfectly to vindicate the divine majesty from all the dishonor your many great sins have cast upon it. It was a much greater thing for Christ to die than it would have been for you and all mankind to have burnt in hell to all eternity. You you see the juxtaposition here. I think this is just beautiful. One man, the mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, on on one side of the scale, and on the other, you and the entire family of fallen man under Adam. I mean, one little man and this great mass of humanity and us being punished to all eternity with no end is less, if I can put it this way, less uh, ascribing the glory of God and displaying the glory of God's justice than this one man, Christ Jesus, the divine God-man, perishing and the blood flowing from his veins and the justice of God satisfied in his vengeance. One is infinite. One is so finite that it has to go on forever and ever and ever with no end. And even then, it's never fully paid, which is why it keeps going on and on and on. That's how pristine and peerless and impeccable God's justice is. And that's the justice that hangs on the head of every sinner. Well, the effect of the sermon was extraordinary, Edward said. Many were cut to the heart. Some, he says now, and again, this is in his his faithful narrative, Some have their sins, multitudes of them, coming fresh to their memory in an extraordinary manner. Others have their minds fixed on a particular wicked practice. He's he's showing the variety of responses in in a sinner. Uh, it's, it's, It's not just a stamp. There's various ways that the Holy Spirit is working, but he's accomplishing the same thing. Others have their minds fixed on a particular wicked practice that they have indulged in. Some are convinced especially by a sense of the sin of unbelief. Some of the enmity of their heart against God. But whatever the particular sins were, the common conviction, says Edwards, was this sense of the excellency of God's justice in their own condemnation. Not just a general, the justice of God is great. But as they're feeling condemned, their eyes are being opened and they see the excellency of God's justice in it. How admirable it is. Now that, that is something that a natural man, uh, he's entering the kingdom when he's beginning to have thoughts like this. Delighting in the justice of God because it's so, so crystal pure. Even if it's falling on him. I don't say that he's suddenly happy, but he sees the sense of justice and there's something in his heart that leaps at the sight of it. Sometimes Edward says, At the discovery, they can scarcely forbear crying out, It is just, it is just. They could take part with God against themselves. Now, here, if you remember Freelinghausen's question way back in in week two, when he asked his congregation, Do you have such views of what you deserve that you could justify God if he cast you into hell? 
Well, this is exactly what we're seeing being played out here in Northampton in 1735. They could take part with God against themselves. Uh, Very similar to David's language in Psalm 51, when he repents of his sin and he says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me, that you may be justified in your judgment and in your condemnation of me. Blameless in your judgment, David said. Well, this is exactly the process that is taking place. And, And don't mistake it for a natural response to an emotional sermon. This is the Spirit of God coming in, blessing the preaching of His Word, out of Romans in this case, and effectually calling sinners to Himself. I'll continue. Uh, When it is thus, when they now are taking part with God against themselves and loathing their own unworthiness, when it is thus, they commonly have some evident sense of free and all-sufficient grace. Well, now they're finding faith beginning to rise in their heart. Suddenly the invitation of God is there and they're gravitating toward it, as it were. Uh, This is faith. This is saving. This is justifying faith. And you see how it comes from, again, the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit has been rotting. That's not a word. Which the Holy Spirit has wrought and is continuing to affect in their heart. Some evident sense now appears of free and all-sufficient grace, a sweet view of a merciful God, of a sufficient Redeemer. It now appears real to them that God does indeed invite them. Now they could see what they couldn't see before because the Holy Spirit had done that, that work of plowing, as it were. Well, now we're in the middle of 1735. All this is transpiring and uh, I just, I, I, I just want to read a couple of more segments from Edwards here, and then we will close. The work of conversion, he says, uh, in the summer of 1735, was carried on in a most astonishing manner. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ to see that there is an all-sufficiency in God and such plentiful provision made in Christ after they have been borne down and sunk with a sense of their guilt. Such a view exceedingly refreshes them and gives them new and delightful ideas of God and Christ. Again, not new as in novel, but now they're seeing what they couldn't see before. Now they're tasting that honey, to use Edwards' own analogy, that before they only had described to them. Now they're actually, it's in their mouth, they're tasting it, they're digesting it. They're understanding the doctrines of free grace. Even though they had been taught them, now they're understanding them. Now they're loving them. And that's one, great, that's one great sign that you understand true saving doctrine is that you love it. If you just understand it, um, but you're fairly indifferent about it, chances are you don't really understand it. They speak much now of their sense of the excellency of the way of salvation by free and sovereign grace. Sovereign grace, the thing that they objected to before. And in fact, Edwards did himself, you recall, when he was a youngster. He objected to this doctrine. But now they're rejoicing in it. Through the righteousness, they speak much of this way of salvation, through the righteousness of Christ alone, and how with delight they renounce their own righteousness. Well, that's just the thing that they were previously unwilling to do. It's why they could not see the sweetness and sufficiency of Christ. Now they renounce their own own righteousness out of hand. It's gone. 
This is filthy rags. We didn't see it before. We thought there was something worthy in it. Now, it's nothing compared to what we see. This is the Christian life. The supreme attention of their minds, says Edwards, is to the glorious excellencies of God in Christ. Well, then he turns to public worship. What was it like in the public worship as they gathered for that hour? It seems, he says, to them that they never heard preaching before. The Bible is a new book. They find their new chapters, new psalms, because they see them in a new light. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words as they came from the minister's mouth. The assembly from time to time, even in tears, while the word was preached. Well, that's, that's our very brief coverage of this awakening in Northampton, of the surprising work of God. Now, next week, um, I will not be here. We're going to listen to a Ligonier, or watch, I guess. I think it's a video on the providence of God. So that's what we'll do next week, and then, Lord willing, the week after that, uh, I will be back again. And we will continue at that point, two weeks from now, uh, we're going to cross the Atlantic. We're going to go to Oxford in England and look at, at the agonies and the exercises of a young student there named George Whitfield. And he's going to be a major part of our story as it, as it goes on. Whitfield and Edwards are the two axes, if you will, of the Great Awakening. There are many more figures, but those are the two, really, um, that carry the burden of it. So that's what we'll look at next week. Now, we do have just a couple of minutes, and I've been wanting to do this every week and it never happens, but, uh, and maybe you don't have any questions, but we, we've got like five minutes if anybody has any questions. If not, we'll just dismiss early. So, John. Um, what was occurring, I think, in what Edwards described was an awakening, a spiritual awakening. Uh, would you distinguish a spiritual awakening from conversion? Well, the, the first difference that comes to mind may not apply to the way you ask that. Oftentimes people ask the question in reference to a revival right. and a conversion. And the answer to that question would be a revival is masses of conversion, not just one here or there, but there's a general greater work of the Spirit of a God. Revival, that, a revival could also occur amongst the converted who were in a low spiritual Certainly, state. yes. Yeah. So to answer your question between an awakening and a conversion, uh, well, no, that's the substance of the awakening is the conversions. Uh, you just would, you would call, with every individual conversion, that person is awakened. When you call it a, an awakening, uh, I guess the implication is that it's, it's, it's wider than just a single person. It doesn't have to be. So Edwards really was describing the conversion of his own congregation. Correct. Correct. Now, that brings up a real knotty problem. Um, we don't have time to go into it, but uh, whether Edwards' view was actually correct, I lean in his direction. But there is another opinion that these were just believers in a low state and they were gaining assurance, which is, is a perpetual struggle for many that grow up in the church hearing the gospel preached. Uh, those are two different views and they don't entirely reconcile with each other. But Edwards is definitely coming from the perspective that he was not converted all those years until he saw the glory of God. Everything was different after that. But that's the experience for many that would say, well, I was converted, I just didn't have assurance. But once I had assurance, everything was new. So that, that, that's another debate altogether, but it's an interesting one. All right, well, let's close in prayer. 
Father, we thank you as always and help us never to tire of thanking you for the great things of Jesus Christ. You've poured yourself into him and sent him into the world and you did so in order for him to bring all his elect to himself in your good time, in your good wisdom, and in your good, infinite and eternal goodness. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Now we ask that you would be with us in this coming hour, that we would taste your goodness and your justice and your love and your mercy, all your excellencies as we hear the word preached. Be with the minister and be with all those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen.